Hello, my name is Ernesto Nieto, founder president of the National Hispanic Institute. This is one of my first attempts at podcasting, if that's what it's called, and engaging staff in conversations that deal with the work of the National Hispanic Institute. It won't be perfect, but I think it'll be sufficiently complex, uh, in-depth, inquiry-driven, and hopefully cause the listener to, to pay closer attention analytically to better, more clearly understand the work of the National Hispanic Institute, and in particular to determine its place in the overall affairs of the Latino community, and especially its vital importance during these times. So putting it within that framework and context, I'm talking to Carla Martinez, who's been with the organization around three to four years. She's a graduate at the University of Chicago. She's from Palatine. Uh, she's a wonderful young woman who deals mostly with the Midwest, but also helps us in many other professional roles uh, as we evolve the work of this organization. I'm also here with my good friend, uh, Julio Cotto, who's, I think, been here since he was born. <laughs> but actually, he started with by approximately 1998, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, 1997. He never left the organization except for a brief period when he went out to New York to join the world of second reality. <laughs> and, then, and then he came back. Uh, he's got a wonderful young daughter, he and his wife named Sophia, who's growing up in the context of this organization. And uh, from the day she was born, and we're watching her develop, and she's nearly two years old. Uh, and uh, we're, we wonder what Sophia is going to be like in the future. And just like my granddaughters, who participated last summer in the great debate as freshmen, uh, there are generational young women and men who are children of NHIers who will probably bring an altogether different understanding of what their experience is from NHI because they will have both an inside and outside view of the experience. So let me get on with this subject about what I wanted to talk about in this conversation with staff. And this is not planned. They do not have questions in advance. There is no prior rehearsal. The questions are really first time. They have no idea what I'm going to ask them. But I'm going to start out with this general kind of question. In your individual views, what makes the work of the National Hispanic Institute especially vital in these times and in particular in the future? And the reason I say that is because we know of organizations out there in the community that practice or say they practice leadership. Uh, it's almost like uh, overnight churches, Julio. They, they pop up every day. Everybody's doing leadership. Back in the days of the 1980s, nobody was doing it. And now just about every colleges and universities, doctoral programs, MBA programs, uh, community organizations, everybody is doing leadership. If you were to place NHI in the middle of all of these endeavors, what in your mind makes it different and especially vital in these times in the Latino community? Julio, let me start with you. I think that NHI's approach to leadership is what I'll, I'll just call your daily use, your, your, your local real-life use of leadership. It's about what's important on a very core level, your value, your family system, your neighborhood, your community. It's not leadership on some career path. Like 
leadership in a organization or corporation or in a civic structure like running for office, um, nor is it within an academic structure, which is the, you know, the amassing of degrees or knowledge or certifications. It's, it's applying it to every aspect of your life and family. And most leadership tends to have some sort of very transactional or direct benefit in the marketplace or in the civic structures uh, that we exist in. And NHI operates outside of that in a more, I think, human way. Carla, give me your general views. On, I think on two fronts, I notice a particular difference um, in, in our approach to leadership. I know being exposed to other leadership programs for young people, um, they use the word leadership, but I'm not sure with what context they use leadership. And I think that in our, prob in our programs, um, there is an application part of leadership because I've always considered leadership to be an action, leadership to be almost like a verb if you're thinking about set and structure. It's not something that you go and you sit and you learn about. You actually have to implement. And at our programs at the first level, students do acquire those simple skills that they're going to need. But at the other level, when it comes to staff, when it comes to being involved with the Institute, leadership is applicable. You actually have to take on then leadership in your community with students, with newer generations in order to practice it. So that's one of the differences. The other is that the structure that we use to um, organize our own NHI cohort, um, our CSC practices is very, I, I've started to, to analyze very natural to the practices of our culture. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I know that a lot of, uh, the uncomfortability that a lot of young people, including myself, when coming into the CSC practices of NHI is that it's not what we have been exposed to. It's not corporate. It's not hierarchical. It's not bottom down structure. It is very communal. And I think that that, that resonates with what we as a people have have been naturally inclined to want to be part of or to want to be attracted to. Um, and, and I don't know that I can pull it into full sentences now, but this is something that I've been noticing the more and more I delve into understanding um, NHI's community social entrepreneurship practices and, and things like that. Let me do a little takeoff on that because you've already introduced just as if though the world knew about it. You said the use of CSE, it means community social entrepreneurship. Uh, we've talked about the differences between that and social entrepreneurship. Julio, can you draw a distinction between the more popular probably or prob more well-known concept of social entrepreneurship versus community social entrepreneurship? I sometimes see social entrepreneurship as business plus it's 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 a business it's profit centered or profit driven but it's got this little extra it does this social good uh whether it's you know clothing people or investing a percentage of all products to some particular uh societal challenge but it's still business it's still like consumer you're still buying a product a brand uh you're still buying a brand uh you're buying it for its you know, because it's it looks nice or it's comfortable. And you, as the consumer, know that, hey, a percentage of this went to some good. So it wasn't just 
a straight up transaction, or at least that's, I think what, what happens community social entrepreneurship doesn't even operate really in, in the context of a business. It uses, I think, business principles of thinking about things in an organized way, thinking about resources, thinking about sustainability, economics. I think that's where the business, the entre the, the relationship may be somewhat similar, but it's not business. It's about a community endeavor. It's about a community opportunity. Uh, more so than a product or, or something you consume. So you have investors and you have entrepreneurial, meaning that it's not all planned out. It means you're taking some risk. What are the risks being taken in a CSE model? If, if people are being asked, get involved, invest your time, your skill, your talent to achieve a common end. What are some, like in general business, there is a knowledge that you're entering the marketplace and the entrepreneurial part is that you're seeking answers and outcomes consistent with, consistent with the benefits you're after. The entrepreneurship is the journey that you do run a risk of failure. What are the risks of failure in a CSE model? I think one uh, that's a big one is keeping it going. I think there are a lot of things that get started with lots of energy, uh, businesses, uh, campaigns, uh, projects, uh, families. There's a lot of things that start with a lot of quick, big spurts of energy. But when you get into the five years, six years, 10, 20, you know, things usually thin out. I think sustaining energy, sustaining excitement, sustaining collaboration um, is one is one of the challenges. But I think if you are benefiting from your investment, you're, you're tied that that relationship is there then you're getting the output is based on the input. They're 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 completely related. You see, you realize the benefits you're getting. Yeah. So if you're benefiting, that it's because you it. put the energy in, and if you're not benefiting, it's because you didn't put it out. So it really comes down on you. And I think that that's sometimes what people don't want to risk is that it is on you. I think that's another aspect of the the concept behind the word uh, inserting entrepreneurial in there is that there's this ownership concept. There's no external force you can blame. Um, or that can take the credit for success or that you can blame for failure. It's all on you and your collaborators, your fellow investors, your fellow beneficiaries. Godla, you make you made a, 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 an interesting comparison a minute ago. You said it wasn't hierarchical. It wasn't, I think you meant top down. You said bottom out. Um, top down, that, that's, that appears to be true. Uh, but you also said that it appeared to be cultural. One of the things that I know we've tried to do in the, in the work of the National Hispanic Institute is flatten the, the, the leadership aspect of it, meaning creating a horizontal structure, a network structure, rather than a hierarchical structure. Why do you feel culturally that fits in better in our community? Well, I come from a background that is very... I guess you want to say communal. Um, I think about the model of maybe like a vecindad. I'm not sure if you're familiar with what that is. It's a, um, it's a living situation when there are different cells, but the cells share a diff a, a very common um, living space, bathrooms, um, all of that. And I think that for my growing up um, and, and looking at how I grew up in Mexico, um, the community was in charge of me 
um, my family as a unit was in charge of my success, my upbringing. Um, the, the town was in charge of, uh, the children's well-being. And I think that that's a very communal, uh, shared responsibility, um, model that also benefits each individual that participates in it because they are by them, by their interactions with it, ensuring the well-being of that neighborhood or that household of that family. Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense. Like it I said, it makes perfect I sense. It makes perfect sense. But let me ask a little: Do you think it's a conscious and unconscious realization that maybe we don't control a lot of resources, but through the shared, uh, through a shared research uh, resource approach, we can gain the same advantages? Do you think there is a unconscious or a conscious realization that by putting in our little two cents worth, maybe larger outcomes? I honestly don't think it's conscious. Even for me, being a part of this of this system when I was younger, I haven't started to even realize it until now where I have something to compare it to. Um, I think that it's natural if people are, I mean, humans are social animals. That That's how we became as successful, I guess you could call it, um, in this world as we are right now because we... Um, decided to form bands of people that work towards whatever imagined goal we put out there. And I think it's natural for us if, if we have limited resources of time, of money, of whatever it might be, to seek out support with other people. Now, um, Western ideals, um, the capitalization, um, consumerism, all kind of fights against that idea of communal investment. Um, and I think that we've been very good at being convinced that naturally we should do something different. But I think that we see it every day here in Mexico and everywhere where, where communities actually do work together. Well, you're seeing that work, at least we try to do that work through the organization. We see that our efforts using this kind of network, flat, flat and horizontal approach to leadership versus hierarchical allows us to have uh, programs in California, New York, in the Midwest, Florida, all over Texas, even the Dominican Republic and, and Panama and wherever, wherever else we operate. Do you think that that's behind the success, that kind of flat organizational horizontal as a modern-day concept using old practices, old philosophies, or better in communities that maybe don't control a lot of financial resources, as it were? I mean, I don't know that I can speak to um, the the particular individual reasons for why all of our alumni decide to go ahead and contribute, but I think there's a sense of shared responsibility that I see across the board that it is their duty to contribute to the benefit of the next generation. And that really takes um, the responsibility from one one leader uh, up top that is directing the rest of, of the bees, if you want to call it, to a elevated form of leadership that includes multiple people that all are willing to contribute. And now for a quick break. The 
National Hispanic Institute is an organization with a 37-year history of working to change the social narratives of our young Latinas and Latinos to help them envision a new America, a new Latino community, a new direction, and a different kind of culture. We want our young people to be inspired by who they are and see the asset value of our culture and these 800 million people in this vast amount of land that starts all the way in Canada and goes all the way to the tip of Argentina. Our hope for an alum is that, A, that they have the mindset of giving back to their community, that they want to help, they want to contribute, and B, is that they realize this throughout their entire lives and make leadership part of their overall journey throughout their whole life. The National Hispanic Institute has been part of my life for as long as I can remember. It has literally educated and re-educated an entire generation or two now of young Latinos and their allies around the country, around the world, to think about our community and think about our role in the community as being change agents and ultimately in advancing the cause and the needs of our community. Personally, the National Hispanic Institute has helped me reach goals and do things that I didn't think I was going to be able to do before. And so what we did was create these learning experiences where young people could learn to be in charge of things. We just encourage people to go way beyond a career in life. We want to see them have a community calling. NHI is a place where I come and I have to learn how do I pass on values. And then the benefit of that self-belief that it's possible, things are possible for all of us, and that we can contribute to the success of others. We look at the richness of our community, at its value, at its capacities, and we go from that point forward. We don't want our young people to look at themselves and their communities and look down. We want them to look up and be inspired. And now back to the conversation. Julio, recently I, I was listening to NPR and there was this woman that was saying that women see leadership very different than, than men. And in particular, she was addressing the issue of hierarchical power, powerful, top-down type leadership as not being as, as efficient and as effective as a flat network related horizontal structures uh, a flat structure, if you will, and its approach to community mobilization. Uh, she, she was saying that women, because they have not had a historical uh, understanding of power in the old context, uh, that their approach to leadership will change the whole context of leadership in this country as we proceed forward. Do you see any consistency with the work of the National Hispanic Institute and what this woman was saying in her publication? In terms of the role of women or in terms that? In terms of the style of leadership, the hierarchical versus the flat horizontal network approach to community development. I seem to think that or see that younger generations are wanting or prefer to be in those environments more and more than aging generations. Um I don't know if it's just the, you know, the internet age, the technology age. I'm sure there's some societal, social answer, but there does seem to be a kind of a global demand for collaboration, for connectivity, uh, for connection. And I think that there's also the undertone of rejecting a lot of uh, 
despite what some election results may may be at the be at the moment uh, across the globe, there is a very loud resistance of traditional top down authoritarian. authoritarian um tyrannical structures and everything from you know well i have to buy this brand because i was told to or you know people aren't willing to just accept the longevity of a brand or its recognizability it's just i think everybody's asking more questions and because of because of the internet we have so many tools to research everything that maybe the the suspicion in the world of anybody's message is uh it's just it's just People don't accept it on face value as much anymore. So I think they're more inclined to want to have a conversation, a group of people and weed out what are patterns and commonalities among people. And I think that that's where truth, if anything, lies. It's in what is common among everybody. And in a top down, one person says it all. One person thinks X. You're not going to distill that. You're not going to distill the commonality of human purpose and community focus and desire from one person's opinion and one person's mouth. Well, let me ask you, why is this horizontal Godla, approach particularly vital to the success? Here it is NHI. This year celebrates 38 years of uninterrupted service in its work. What do you think has been behind its success beyond the individuals that play roles here, beyond the, the individuals who in certain cases have made individual sacrifices in behalf of this organization, what do you think some of the ingredients and elements of organization that play into why NHI has not only used, used this word loosely, survived, but actually thrived and grown and continues to grow? What do you think is the magic behind this? I think definitely in getting older myself and being part of I keep a- saying that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I, I started off with this organization when I was 15 years old, and I am now closer to 30 than not. So there it's has still been... still very young. There, that is still very young, but yeah. there has been a, a... I can claim now a timeline of growth is all that I am, <laughs> uh, that I am pointing to. Okay. And I think that the thing that keeps people engaged or wanting to be engaged or or wanting to contribute is that we are one of the very i i don't know of any other organization that exclusively looks forward um exclusively looks to development we don't um you know part-time our community's development with let's address the issues and and the you know drop dropout rate or the gang related violence we look forward we're always posing our, our ultimate goal is the future is the development of the community is the success of the community it's not um the remediation of the community and when and, you and when and in that when you reframe the concept of equity wealth success when you when you reclassify that in your head as not just money and title or through a hierarchical lens, it all of a sudden means something different. And I think that that's where Latinos in particular, uh, it, it internalizes um, people have an affinity, I think, for the experiences in the organization because it almost starts to replicate what happiness means when you're with your family or with your community or your neighborhood. And 
that's where you start to get, I think, a little confused because other forces are telling you that happiness and success and is something else. Let me ask you a quick, let's get into a couple of controversies, you know, at the expense of the listening audience. Uh, I listen a lot to people talk about different Latino organizations, and almost invariably the question is, who funds you? You and I have been to programs or meetings, and uh, uh, invariably people look around and they kind of compare each other's organizational efforts. But the unanswered question or the unexpressed question oftentimes is, who funds you? And when we say we fund ourselves, we generate our own capacity to be self-sustaining, there's always that surprise look, sometimes even jealous look. Julio, you've been there with me. Where does this come from? I'm not asking you to answer why they may be concerned. Why are they surprised that NHI does not rely on corporate funding, charity, or those things to underwrite its work? It's just not how it's, quote, done. Uh, funny on the phone yesterday with Nicole, one of our colleagues here, uh, we were joking about that. We were experts in non-charitable nonprofit management <laughs> and we were joking around with these terms in that, um, not knocking charity, but it was about that. We are an organization that is self-enterprising and everything we do is what the organization wants to do based on the resources it generates for itself. I've worked at other organizations and you're, any way you slice it, you're at the order of your funder. And if your funder, your donor wants you to go in to the right, then you're going to go to the right. If they want you to turn left, if they want you to make a U-turn, I mean, at some point when you're looking at w running an organization and paying people's paychecks and pay keeping the lights on and the phones and the internet service, uh, sometimes you need resources and those resources come with conditions. So NHI may not have... Uh, maybe the bank account right now that some other organizations does, but it has control and it has we authorship. Own, we also own land. And, we own and then the there's, and then also, again, in talking about how you reclassify those things, our understanding of financial health is not based on our checking account. It's based on our balance sheet. It's based on assets, hard and uh, also assets like our membership, the constituency that we manage, that we can pick up phone calls throughout the hemisphere and leverage uh, resources and influence that real people have because it's a membership organization. I think those things are very different than your common uh, or standard or more well-known Latino nonprofit organization in particular. Why, in your view, Carla, and you jump in here, Julio, why, uh, Julio, why, why would people sometimes find it difficult to understand that we are self-sustaining? I honestly think is that they have never even thought about it. It has never crossed their mind that a group of Latinos focusing on leadership, focusing on developing the community would ever choose this path of self-sustaining. Uh, you think we're a charity-driven looking organization, community? I, think, I mean, I'm very honest with parents at presentations and I tell them that I'm not trying to do charity with your kids. I'm not selecting them. They weren't invited because they need some sort of help. We're selecting them because they are the best kids. They don't need any help. We, we are going above and beyond. This is extra. 
period, point blank, and you need to invest in something that is going to be extra. If you don't, then you're going to stay exactly where you are, which is charity, service, and that type of, of mentality. So when we talk about a community in need, do you think that we strategically send out the wrong message, meaning that we train our communities to see themselves as needy people, people with deep, complex human issues that require external intervention rather than a community rich with assets? What, what is the I message mean, that has historically been given? I think external intervention is, is fine. External dependency is the problem to me. Because, I mean, if you can have your, 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 your public entity or your local private, you know, partner uh, being in, be a force that's external and coming in, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it's when it's the, the dependency factor. And you do have states and cities and communities where parents and kids are already trained to play up that play that, narrative, game. Play play that, that game. narrative because there are resources attached to it our policy even at the federal level is written with that narrative so if that's even at the legal level it's framed in the concept of need high risk um that you have to play Human into suffering. it in order to extract the oil that's the drill you have to use but if we play into that game then we must see ourselves at the bottom of the hierarchy well, that's the thing. I don't think that in these policy impact conversations, people talk about the psychological effects of of what ha of, of the other side. Like right now, the the census, the next census is going to be what, like three years away, less than three years away. They're already talking about it. And one of the things that's maybe a little bit being talked about is how to classify Latinos and Hispanics. And it's an unsettled issue based on how it was done the last census. But nobody takes into account the psychological impact to millions of people in the in the country who are asking themselves, have I even been counted? <laughs> even on just on that, the, am I in any box? Because <laughs> there is no box or there's three boxes. So we, we make these policies, but we never think about what it means to people and what it means beyond the X's and O's. It's because somebody else evaluates us. Someone else determines who we are. Someone else defines our identity. I want to ask one final question. Maybe it's a little bit controversial. Start with Carla, and then I want you to chime in, Julio. Who should participate in NHI? Should it be limited only to young people who grow up in the culture of NHI and therefore essentially are more prone to adopt the views of NHI? Or should it be anyone well i think that we should continue to be representative of our community and that means latinos that are in every facet of life that they are in every geographical area i think we need to be the place that actually services a actual representation of our community uh, I think that well, now you're giving me a demographic, and I'm I understand that. That's not my question. I I'm, I'm asking a question of membership. Uh, I, I understand the demographic and the stratas and the different nationalities. That's 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 the truth of this organization. We deny access to no one, including African American children, including Anglo children, other children. It doesn't matter to us so long as the idea is servicing the leadership needs of the Latino community. We operate on that premise. My question had to do with 
who should join, meaning who should gain admission from the standpoint of our ideological points of view? Is it something that we must nurture and grow from the very beginning or just open it up to anyone? What Are there difficulties in people making that transition that come from other world views and other world experiences? I mean, I don't know that we could be at this point in time that we need to nurture that that we need to prime them for the even consideration of our ideology because as we know they haven't everything that we stand for is almost contrary to what they've been exposed to so they do need to be primed in order for this to even ring for them um i'm not sure how you are framing the exclusion of anybody into the the organization. Well, let me let um, me ask let me let me let me interrupt you just a minute. Pardon me and just ask Julio. You know that we literally make decisions that if you are not an NHIR, you're not part of this congregation. I'm using almost con- religious terms to you because we've had in the past invited young men and women who are Latina Latino to act in various roles in our organization during the summer leadership series, and we end up having to spend an inordinate amount of time helping them understand the practices, the, the views, it, the philosophy. It's a study. It's an academy. It's, it's not just a, an organization that you can just sign up for. Um, only thing is the way you were describing it now I can think of is uh, in, in school as a kid, I, I switched schools and I wasn't able to take this particular um, course for no other reason than the way it worked is it this course required three, four years of prior uh, of prior training in order for you to kind of fit in into how it works. And it's a study. The study of what we do requires a long time. And it requires you to also be in a particular age in your life to be able to contextualize the conversation. So when you're in high school... What about level 16, of intellect? I think level of intellect, I, I think, is harder to sometimes capture. I mean, I know we have a GPA requirement. I, I've always understood it that it's less about their their academic knowledge and rather their behaviors. I mean, if someone's making a particular GPA that we ask for, to me, it's not a measure of, oh, well, this kid's so smart because they know all the science. I think in order to maintain that GPA or better, there has to be a level of discipline that they either have or that their parents instilled or that that school environment is really developing them. So to me, it's not about the the knowledge factor. It's about uh, the behaviors that they're coming to the table with that you can kind of, to me, that's what I extract out of the academic requirement. The intellect is something, again, it has to be nurtured. Some kids you can, I think you find that 15, 16, maybe, uh, you can probably guess that they were in an environment early on as children in these types of conversations. They were asked a lot of questions. They were encouraged to be inquisitive. And then you can tell other students that the potential is there. They just haven't maybe had that many opportunities to express an opinion, express a thought. But if you stick at it and you stick at it, you know, the playing field gets leveled really quickly. Well, I think the world needs to know that the organization is designed to produce a supply side for a growing Latino community. We want skilled, educated leaders. When we talk about that, in a way, we're kind of assuming that it's institutional, but in another way, we're saying we have a particular view of leadership and how we engage our communities and how we practice leadership. It's not organizational in the traditional sense of corporate life. It's not representative in the in the sense of political, civic life, but it is from a mobilization, learning how to 
capture moments and energies in the community on, under a shared approach to community development, and that we have a very distinct understanding of what community leadership is all about, and that it's actually a social science that can be taught and experienced. So I wanted to thank you. On the next interview, we're going to get into the whole idea of third reality. What does that mean in the organization? When we talk to our alums and young people and parents and schools about the, the idea and concept of a third reality, belief systems and how we view the world, uh, these are things that are important to our development as a community, our outlooks, and important of how we practice organizational mission together. Thank you very much for your contributions. For more information on the National Hispanic Institute, please visit our website, www.nationalhispanicinstitute.org. Call us at 512-357-6137. Find us on Facebook at NHIHQ or on Twitter, NHI underscore news, and at Instagram and Snapchat, NHI underscore news. Music by Andres Cotto.